3: The Bowery Boys episode 230, Before Harlem, New York's Forgotten Black Communities. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our
0: listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
3: Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom Myers is away this episode, but for a very, very good reason, I swear, and one that we'll tell you all about in a future episode. The stories of history, of American history, are often summaries. Immigration is spoken about in terms of the primary cultures of those who came over in the greatest numbers, the Irish and the Germans in the mid-19th century, for instance. History tends to be written by those with the megaphone, given a voice either by the accident of their birth or by the sheer force of their number. Mostly in primary sources, those without voices, those outside the main bullet points of the historical record, these voices are often ignored or even erased. Today, I'll be looking at one of those communities, often shut out of mainstream retellings of the city's history. The black residents of New York from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries this is obviously a monumental story for many reasons, not only impacted by the institution of the American slave trade, and later its violent and contentious abandonment of that institution, but the shameful treatment in New York of both formerly enslaved and free black people. So I'm going to narrow the focus here specifically on place the physical spaces themselves, the settlements, the neighborhoods where early black New Yorkers lived their lives. Today, we sometimes define African-American culture by place, most notably Harlem, and also bed neighborhoods that developed as mass centers for black residents in the 20th century. But these weren't the first. Other centers of black and African-American life existed long before then. In most cases, they were obliterated by the growth of the city, sometimes built over without a single marker, without recognition. In this show, I'll be talking about several former black communities in pre-20th century New York City history. But this is way too important a story to tell by myself. So later, I'll be joined by author and tour guide, Kama Ware of the Black Gotham Experience and Tia Pal-Harris from the Weeksville Heritage Center. But we begin this story in the early 19th century with a community that has been entirely erased from existence, a little village that was replaced by a park. To be going all over the place chronologically with this show and all over the map as well, with locations in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Staten Island. But one date in particular I wanted you to keep in mind July 4th, 1827. That's almost 190 years ago. That was the date that New York State abolished slavery completely the end point of a difficult process which had begun in 1799 when children of enslaved people born within the state were then born automatically free. In March of 1827, a New York minister named Peter Williams Jr. founded the very first newspaper for free blacks in the United States. In June, just days before the abolition of slavery in New York, Williams wrote in the Freeman's Journal, quote, The day is fast approaching when this great state will free itself from the reproach of holding their fellow men in bondage. This event is a matter of joy and thanksgiving to the real friends of freedom in all parts of the world. It affords a lively and convincing proof that the spirit of the age is hostile to the doctrine that all men are not born free and equal. And we trust that this noble example of patriotism will be followed by those other states whose annals are marred by the foul blot of slavery. The truth is, New York City was still very involved in slavery via the countless number of businesses headquartered on Wall Street or on the waterfront, businesses who profited handsomely from goods grown or manufactured in slave states. The city of New York did not magically become a place of great tolerance. Although it was one of the key centers for the abolitionist movement, with abolitionist leaders both white and black, racial and ethnic animus was a dominating force of social behavior in the city, with no other more sinister example of its presence than the Civil War draft riots of 1863. I'll have a bit more on those violent times later in the show. I want to instead draw you back to the year 1827, and to the 1820s generally, to a time when much of the island of Manhattan was still very much undeveloped, its original topography and natural state tempered only mildly with farms and estates. The population of the city of New York was confined to the area below today's 14th Street. The rest of the island, however, was far from unoccupied. Tiny villages had popped up all over the place, many near the water's edge or close to one of the two main thoroughfares stretching up the Thin Island, Bloomingdale Road on the west side and the eastern post road on the east. Several of these small villages were directly connected to many of the old Dutch and British estates, parceling up the sides of Manhattan. When an estate owner wanted to sell his property, and after the Revolutionary War, for various reasons, many of them often did sell, they naturally parceled off the land into smaller parts to sell, thus the creation of a village, often populated with small farms or people developing properties on much smaller lots. Just in the area of today's Upper West Side, for instance, there was Manhattanville and Hardenville. Carmenville and Bloomingdale Village. And in the area approximately between 82nd and 86th Street today, alongside where Central Park West is, lay another place with a curious name of Seneca Village. A farm once sat here owned by a man named John Whitehead. In 1825, he and his wife began chopping up their property for sale. The Commissioner's Plan of 1811 had authorized most of the island of Manhattan to be sectioned off into organized streets and avenues. In advance of that, the Whiteheads could get rich just by selling off their land to anybody. Their first buyer, who purchased three lots for $125, was a man named Andrew Williams, an African-American bootblack. This was more than a homestead for Williams. He was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, founded in 1821 in New York. Soon others from the congregation joined Williams, purchasing land from Whitehead. Eventually, so too did the church itself, building a new cemetery for its worshippers here, as new burials were banned down within the city limits by this point. More and more land plots were sold by Whitehead to other black residents, many affiliated with Zion and other churches, so that by 1830s, it had become a sizable village. Nobody is quite sure of the origin of its name, however. Although it sounds like it may have Native American origins, the Seneca Nation was based in western New York after all, but we're not 100% sure. Seneca Village would grow to have dozens of different kinds of structures, including three churches, one of them with a school for African-American children. But this was not merely a place to foster a black community, an understandable need, given the crippling prejudices prevalent in the city. It was literally an opportunity for many men to acquire a form of political power. For you see, in 1821, just a few years before Andrew Williams bought his first plot of land, the state of New York, in a convention overseen, curiously enough, by the Vice President of the United States, Daniel D. Tompkins, they passed a state constitution with a very onerous provision. All men, regardless of race, were granted the right to vote. Women would have to wait almost one hundred years for this privilege. But men of color could only vote if they owned property of at least $250 in value, or about $5,000 today. White men had no such restriction. Essentially, only wealthy men of color could vote. And in 1821, there were very few of those in the United States, much less the state of New York. Seneca Village provided not only a home, but its land literally gave its owners a say in government. This was particularly key, as the residents of Seneca Village would have backed political candidates who supported the abolition of slavery nationwide. By 1850, of New York's 12,000 black residents, only 100 of them were qualified to vote, but at least 10 of those came from tiny Seneca Village. But over time, Seneca Village became more than a haven for the black community. In a bit of obvious foreshadowing for you, starting in 1837, the city began construction of the Croton Aqueduct, the impressive water system which brought water to the city of New York down from the Croton River. The city took over land just east of Seneca Village at a place called York Hill to construct a massive receiving reservoir over 1,800 feet long, 836 feet wide. This massive project displaced other small enclaves populated with other African-Americans as well as immigrants of Irish and German origin, and they all, in turn, would move to Seneca Village. It's a safe bet that the residents of Seneca Village even worked on construction of the Croton Reservoir System itself, By 1855, according to the census, there were a total of 264 residents, including Mr. Andrew Williams, the former bootblack, now a cartman, selling his wares on the streets of the city down south. Mr. Williams had seen the village rise up around his property from scratch, but now the days of Seneca Village were numbered. The trustee commissioner's plan of 1811, which did a bang-up job of creating streets, did little in the way of providing New York residents with open spaces. With the waves of mass immigration which began in the 1830s, this lack of legitimate park spaces became an urgent problem. Many city leaders and newspaper editors advocated for the grid to be revised, inserting a massive public space. Of course, this drive would eventually create Central Park, officially authorized by the New York legislature in 1853. Because the park is such a tranquil vista today, you might get the sense that little was done to actually create it. But in fact, most of the park is elaborately landscaped. And to execute the plan hatched by architects Olmsted and Vox, the land between 59th Street and 106th Street, it was later extended to 110th Street, and between 5th Avenue And 8th Avenue, well, this entire area needed to be evacuated, cleared, and leveled. The city swept in, clearing away squatters and shanty towns, homes and businesses alike, buying out 1,600 people using the power of eminent domain. Seneca Village was not spared. Its residents united with neighbors in pushing against the city's plans, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. By 1857, those who had once called Seneca Village home were now gone. Workmen came in and destroyed the houses, demolished the churches, razed the cemeteries. A 30-year-old community had been erased. It was rarely mentioned in newspapers, namelessly lumped together with the piggeries and the shanty towns, as a place that no map would remember, that nobody would miss. But Seneca Village would not be forgotten. A significant exhibition at the New York Historical Society in 1997 brought renewed attention to this tiny detour of New York City history. And in 2005, researchers and archaeologists began studying the grounds of Central Park for any remaining signs of the former village. In 2011, they were rewarded with what can only be described as a treasure trove, 250 bags of artifacts from Seneca Village, as well as clay smoking pipes, a child's shoe, and even the foundation walls of a house owned by a church sexton. But there is one ghost of Seneca Village that needs no digging tools to observe. A stone foundation left undisturbed near the 85th Street entrance of Central Park. The remainder, many believe, of the former African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. For all you budding Indiana Jones types out there, it seems that urban archaeologists are the warriors in the fight to rediscover the lost communities of old New Yorkers. The places that the newspapers and reports of the day failed to cover with fairness, if they ever wrote about them at all. In many cases, these are secrets the city wanted to keep buried exposing uncomfortable truths about life in early New York. In 1991, work began on a new federal office building at 290 Broadway, when during excavation of its foundation, workers found something truly startling. Evidence of a vast burial ground stretching over the area, the remnants of an African burial ground tracing back to the late 17th century to the years of British occupation. After extensive work on the site, the remains of 419 people were discovered, of an estimated 20,000 believed to have been buried here at one point. Also discovered were an extraordinary set of artifacts, the social and ritual accoutrement reflecting a side of New York life essentially missing from the history books. On October 5th, 2007, the site was dedicated as the African Burial Ground National Monument. Now, For more information on this, you can check out Bowery Boy's podcast, episode 115. This discovery marks just a portion of the sector where many of New York's first black inhabitants made their home. And so to understand the context of the rest of the story here, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, fortunately, I know somebody who specializes in the history of the black community during this period. Kamau Ware started the Black Gotham Experience in 2010, providing walking tours specific to this era of New York history. And he's working on a graphic novel on the subject. It just so happens that the Black Gotham Experience has a swanky cool new storefront down at the South Street Seaport. So I swung down there one gray morning earlier this week to visit the workspace and to talk to Kamau about the very first black community in New York City. All right, we are now down in the South Street Seaport at a very Interesting, an amazing space, a, a workspace, a creative space, with the founder of Black Gotham Experience, Kamau Ware. Hello, hello, so good to be here. This space is remarkable. I think people can hear that it's kind of echoey because it's a it's a vast space. When I say it's on the seaport, I mean it's like I'm looking at a ship over there, which you look at every day. Over there, there's a line of tourists getting their Broadway (laughs) discount tickets.
4: Yep, which is great. They walk in here and say, what is this? And I describe it and say, damn it, I'm going to Chicago tonight, I just bought a ticket. It's like, well, at least you know who we are.
3: Come back next time. How did you start the Black Gotham experience? Like, Tell me a little bit of the origin story of of how you decided to focus on this particular period of, of New York City history.
4: Here I am in my 30s in New York City, and I'm giving tours at the Tenement Museum. And the tour that I was given was then called Getting By. And that tour focuses on a couple both from the uh, Germanic state of Prussia that met in New York, had some difficulty, and the woman ended up having to make it on her own. Um, So I'm I'm, I'm giving that story. and one about the Balditis, et cetera, this Italian family. And I'm giving that tour to a school group in 2008 um, the class is all of African descent, something that I didn't think about per se. I was just comfortable talking about families and being around, you know, these, these young black youth. Um, but all the girls in the class, about three or four of them, would never ask a question. Hmm. All the boys were like, is this the real bed? Is this a real doll? Did the baby die in here? And then by the time the tour is over, it's like an hour and a half into the whole process. I'm like, any last questions? And then finally one little girl raised her hand and she just kind of had her eyes just fixed on me like this. Mm -hmm. And she's like, where were the black people? And I was just like, whoa, she's been up there thinking and Mm -hmm. waiting for something that was more relevant for her. And I could appreciate that, even though I was comfortable talking about German, Jewish and Italian families as as a black person. For a twelve thirteen year old her curiosity is different, and she was just trying to figure out why are we in a room all black people talking about people who don 't look like us i 'm trying to understand where 's the black experience and I took that question just just the, the the emotion I walked out of that situation with would only be addressed if I would just really went in and found out like more about the black experience and began to like share that with other people
3: well so what 's interesting about Having the place here, in particular, having it here at the seaport, having it so close to Wall Street, having it so close to City Hall, this isn't in Harlem. This isn't in Midtown. This isn't in a place where, if you could opened it in those places, it would be a, it would be a completely different thing. But that is because your focus is. Old New York, yeah pr- uh, principally everything before even the nineteenth century totally. right and so that 's really the focus of your walking tours mm-hmm. that you do. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the kind of the themes of your walking tours that uh, that they start here they start and finish here right most of them there 's mm-hmm. two i just i 'll just run down
4: the the, the tours that we we 're going to have in our uh, our ove, <laughs> our body mm-hmm. of walking tourists. Um, <clears throat> the first one is Other Side of Wall Street, which focuses principally on the establishment of that, you know, black community that lives literally on the other side of Wall Street. Then we have Caesar Rebellion Part 1 and Part 2. And Part 1 looks at the first armed black rebellion during the time of British New York 1712 mm-hmm. and the context for that.
3: So in this show, I'm specifically talking about places where black New Yorkers lived, where, they ha- where their lives were at, places that are mostly gone, have been erased for whatever reason. If we're going here all the way back to the very beginning, to, to the days of Dutch New Amsterdam, to the days of British New York, what we're talking about is a region that was somewhat outside the city. Because, of course, the city, as it was designed, as it was defined back then, was essentially the area of Wall Street and below. Is that correct? True. Right. So the original settlement, at least in in early maps and how it's sort of been informally described, is called the Land of the Blacks, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a sort of an area that stretched from about the wall or, or Collect Pond, which was the freshwater pond uh, just outside of the wall. From there up into the village, is that right? Yeah,
4: well, it's, it was like behind the Collect Pond. Um, one way to like pinpoint it is what was the Broadway was initially a Wikwasek trail that got expanded by people who came from Angola and the Congo. And during the 17, 1643 war that Kiev started, with the massacre over in Pavonia, which is now like uh, Hoboken. Hoboken, uh, right. um, That was like their way, they they would always like come and attack. And so the first two landowners, Catalina and Domingo, their land was more or less right up Broadway where NYU is. And so it was kind of like, hey, you know, they just got married like two years ago. And so can you imagine that being like a honeymoon conversation? (laughs) (laughs) How about that land we asked the director general for? He's he's saying we can get some acres right in the middle of uh, a war. What you think, honey? (laughs) shopping
3: you know it's either you go or you i am or i assume they didn't have too many choices back in the day it was yes or no but there was people who um that were
4: offered land in the same area that were not from, you know, Angola to Congo, who was kind of like, hell no to William Kiev when he offered them that land. But black people began to take that land. And then gradually, um, it began to expand. And by 1644, it kept continuing to grow. And then eventually, you know, it became known as land of the blacks and it's twice the size that Soho is right now. And so I think that if, if you look at the community of people who got the parcels of land, a lot of those folks are people who probably also were on the same slave ship that was leaving Angola, headed to South America, that was raided by pirates, that was then brought to New Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first communities to consider was not even Manhattan, but not even a slave ship. But these guys might have known each other in Angola, which is an amazing <laughs> thing to consider. Yeah,
3: that is. that is
4: Because people that, were using, that are used to the British transatlantic slave trade as the West Coast got more built out with more "quote unquote" slave ports, mm-hmm. they would intentionally mix the different tribes, make it harder for them to communicate on the slave ships because they knew there was a cause for you know worry. Because mm-hmm. if they could communicate, there were mutinies or there was you know takeovers, there were rebellions on those ships. And so, if you think about being in a slave ship for like a semester at college with people that you might know from your hometown, that's one of your first communities. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then by the time you come to New Amsterdam and you see that there were two landowners in 1643 and then like 11 in like a year, it just seemed like they looked out for each other. And right. obviously at some point in time found a way to get along with the
3: Native Americans there too. Well, they, I mean, you had to, it was right. It was like your survival because you weren't being protected. You weren't, you weren't behind that wall. The people behind that wall were using you (laughs) as a buffer (laughs) to protect the wall. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or in the case of that particular wall, these people helped build the wall. There's a great chance of that. Yeah. Yeah. And what what I often tell
4: folks is if, you know, this is a company town. This is not a colony. They're not coming here with a flag saying everybody has to speak Dutch and has to be Protestant. Mm-hmm. And because it was a company town, they cared mostly about, you know, money. You know, whether it's beaver skins or, you know, robbing treasure fleets or slave ships or Portuguese, their enemies, um, that was our goal. Mm-hmm. And so if black people were able to get awarded land by the company, companies don't give out anything unless you've made the money, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And so... In order for those black people to have made the money or for them to turn a profit by their labor, they must have done some very important things. And so, if you look at the date, sixteen forty-three and sixteen forty-four, when land begins to get you know earned by this community, what happened before that? Broadway was built, the first Wall Street was built, the Stott Hayes and the City Hall, that the first City Hall was built. Um, the fort was completed. Um, there were other like patroon ships that were developed. And so, more than likely, if these people were able to earn their freedom and get land, they must have done something, some kind of public work that was monumental or else, you know, they like win it in a bet. You know, I doubt they, I doubt that they, I doubt doubt that that was a card game that they won (laughs) and got some freedom
3: over a game of poker. No, they, they built the city. Yeah, basically. Essentially. So with the British arriving, things got worse, were the black settlers who already lived in this particular area, in this area between Collect Pond and, and what would become Washington Square Park, right? Mm-hmm. The English had a very specific
4: idea when they did take New York. And so when you talk about how things got worse for black people that were settled here, you know, I would say I would, I would, I would go up one more notch. The reason why they took the area is because the brother to the king, Duke of York, had this proclamation— in 1662, that gave him a monopoly on the English slave trade, which meant very little if there was not an actual slave trade. And so New York was a town named after him, and he had a company that he was a primary shareholder of, the Royal African Trading Company, and they used New York as the commercial hub for that company. And so the whole idea of creating New York, which is named after James Stewart, Mm -hmm. was for the slave trade. That was the sole purpose of it. And James Stewart was the founder of a company that becomes one of the biggest slave trading forces in the next century. And so New York has basically gone from a place where you can look for beaver skins and pirates can rage ships. They also get involved in the slave trade after the 80s years war is over. But when the English come and they take this island, they're taking it to make it uh, the hub of the transatlantic slave trade, which, which which brings all kind of havoc and misery to millions of black lives that are mm-hmm. going to be lost in the next, you know, decades. And so what this area becomes is like a, almost like the, uh, like the shopping center for the transatlantic slave trade, where you think that they're selling people here. What they're actually doing is mostly providing provisions for people who run slave plantations in the West Indies. And so what's happening is you have this very... And once again, going back to questions, what's it like to have a free black community up Broadway? You cross Wall Street and you have the hub of the transatlantic slave trade principally run by people that are
3: also enslaved. So I want to just jump ahead really quickly to the period after the Revolutionary War. Just Mm -hmm. really, really quickly because so this, this era, these original settlements... Some, some portions of them will evolve. The area around Washington Square Park, for instance, will evolve in its own way. But for the most part, most of these settlements, in, in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of, of course, the burial ground, which was around Collect Pond. Mm-hmm. When Collect Pond was, of course, eventually drained and flattened out in the early 19th century, all evidence... Of these settlements was erased completely and utterly erased. Just you mean like the, the, the land of the blacks?
4: Yes, that was that. That began to phase out even sooner. Really? Okay. Yeah, it, and it's 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 um one of the reasons why I'm doing a graphic novel is because for me this is all epic storytelling, but there's also like these black holes that we can choose to like allow them to be black holes forever, mm-hmm. or we can begin to like you know throw some some little stars in there, right? Fill them in, yeah. Um, and that can be inferred, and it can be you know, owned up front that we may not know all this, but you can still have like a bibliography and notes to show you where you're getting your sources from. But after the 1712 rebellion it happened April 6th at midnight, um, and the people that were involved that were caught or brutally murdered, Um, They began to pass new laws around curfews, around not riding horseback, about blacks can't have guns. And then they also began to do things like, say, you also can't own land if you're black. So that law was passed. We don't know what happened with the land of the blacks, but we do know that there were people that were free that were involved in that rebellion as well. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the 1720s and 30s, you still see evidence and anecdotes of people who were still black, free, and had land. But the size of land of the blacks must have began to like shrink and get smaller and by the time you get past 1741 i mean i believe that by the time you had the 1741 rebellion based on the daniel horseman's mm-hmm. journal the new york conspiracy there's no anecdotes in there to talk about this a black community that lived up broadway you, there's like no reference to it there's mention of black people who have land outside of the city but there's no like big Large black community. So I think that by the time you get to the revolution, which is also important to kind of like touch on, because yeah. New York, when the Howe brothers show up, they say, you know what? Slavery's done. You guys want to revolt and complain about slavery and tyranny? You know what we're going to do? So we're done with slavery. The original Emancipation Proclamation came from the British, not from Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And then they said, anybody that's black and fights on our side will be free once the war's over. And so a lot of black people began to flock to New York City because like, yo, we're free. Of course, right. And so once the revolution is over, and then we as Americans, double consciousness is always so crazy, (laughs) we reneged on our offer to give our veterans freedom. And so the majority of black people that fought with the Continental Army were sent back sent back into slavery. And so right after the revolution, you've got to consider is there's a lot of black people in New York that are living in this city like regular mm-hmm. citizens because that's the culture that the Howe brothers set up, which was a form of propaganda and also a military
3: strategy. Oh, yeah. It was crafty of them because then they could build up allies, essentially. Totally. On their and, side. and a fighting force that was mm-hmm.
4: formidable, you know. And so after that was over, black people were like not just in land of the blacks. So black people were like walking
3: around like regular New York citizens going mm-hmm. to the theater, Right. Going, going, going to church. Oh, God. And then that just changed overnight. So you mentioned the graphic novel, because I want to I wrap up by, by saying how excited I am cool. that you are doing a graphic novel awesome. about this period. You can't imagine. You get a signed copy of the first chapter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> is, I, I, is there art? Is, is it some of the art available?
4: Yeah. Like, actually, um, if you look at what's on the glass. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm what I'm pointing out to Greg, everybody, is uh, it's a it's, it's a style of creating images where we we photograph people and use design to create a look that mimics the etching style of printmaking, the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s before the camera began to become the primary form of documenting people mm-hmm. and places. And so that is how we are designing the graphic novel is using people as our primary subject matter, which which allows us then to bring in fashion designers to make the clothing mm-hmm. and also graphic designers and illustrators to do the designs. Mm-hmm. And so some of the so some of the artwork that you see here on the walls I mean, on the glass, that is that is the that is the style of the graphic novel. But I can go grab a page for you real fast.
3: <laughs> you you want to see it? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so I have what looks like, I believe, the cover. Yes, or, or a cover, at least a cover page. It's beautiful, and it's a, it's a black and white drawing with uh, two main characters. Yeah,
4: that's that's Domingo and Catalina. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a there's a double marriage in 1641. Um, the first black marriage is a, is it's it's a Lucy and a Lawrence. And then there's a Catalina and a Domingo. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Um, And then like two years later, there's a Catalina and a Domingo who are the first landowners. And so these are um, main characters of our story. And what you have here is photographs of like a frame, photographs of people. Um, This one over here is also Mm -hmm. photography based. And it's like, you know, um, clouds and like the sky and like, you know, bodies ascending. And part of that image there. Is to show black people dying in a way that doesn't like bring the morbidity into it. Right. Instead, they're kind of like angels going past the clouds and into the darkness mm-hmm. of the sky, versus showing them drowning or showing them, you know, being whipped to death. I feel like we've we, we've seen so much of that; it's almost become like a form of porn to show like black people getting beat up and their teeth knocked out. It's like we've seen that. Um, let's actually like look at them as like people who. Are being killed by different nations that all believe in God, mm-hmm. and so to show them ascending into, you know, past the clouds is like a little bit of a counterpoint. Well, to look
3: at them not as bodies, but to look at them as souls. Yes, essentially. sir. Yes, sir. So do do you have a do you have a sort of, ETA? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. yeah ch- chapter one comes out this month. Oh, excellent. All right, well, it has been a total pleasure. This has been a blast. Thanks, I'm coming man. down no. here on Saturday for the party, <laughs> a of course. All right, well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Greg. Coming up after the break, a tale of the village and a visit to Weeksville.
0: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.
1: Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
3: ba 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 Let's now land in New York City in the 1860s. Seneca Village was no more. And it certainly seemed that the city was growing much too rapidly for such a place like that to ever develop in Manhattan again. The center for African-American life would turn to a less bucolic village, Greenwich Village. Almost 230 years before, a portion of the land near today's Washington Square Park was granted as property to the first black New Yorkers. Decades later, the village of Greenwich would be established, developed from the estate of the British naval officer Sir Peter Warren. But centuries later, by the 1860s, this was no longer recognizable as a village, but rather as a dense tenement district. And this area, south and west of Washington Square Park, was known as New York's principal African-American neighborhood. It was called mostly by the white press, it was called Little Africa. Black New Yorkers first moved into the area as early as the late 18th century. Many decades later, if you read anything about Little Africa in the newspapers at all, it was usually something rather scandalous or shocking. Many of you may be familiar with the so-called Black and Tans on Bleecker Street, were black patrons mixed with white patrons, the mere idea of racial integration while having a good time being a disreputable notion back then. As late as the 1890s, social reformer Jacob Rees spoke of such places as filled with, quote, "...the utterly depraved of both sexes, white and black." Minetta Lane, within this area of Little Africa, was especially notorious back in the day, made famous by writer Stephen Crane, who regales readers of notorious black criminals who haunted the streets with such names as Bloodthirsty and No-Toe Charlie. And if you've heard of Little Africa, that might be the reputation you have of it. But obviously, as with stories of slum neighborhoods like this and Five Points, which, by the way, also had a small African-American community within it, you need to peel back the sensation which was used to sell these 19th century newspapers. You probably would not have heard about Little Gay Street, which was a stable alley for local wealthy residents for their horses and carriages, and where many black New Yorkers lived as chauffeurs and stablemen. During the 1850s, another group of parishioners from the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church opened a home here on Bleecker Street. A black Baptist congregation, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, opened up that very same decade at 166 Waverly Place. The Abyssinian would eventually move way uptown to West 138th Street in the early 20th century with their minister, Adam Clayton Powell, creating the spiritual bedrock for the future neighborhood of Harlem. Little Africa was not a great place to live, but then again, few places in the mid-19th century were for African-American residents. They were essentially forced to live in the worst possible housing and were often charged exorbitant rates, even for those squalid places. There was nowhere to hide for black New Yorkers in the city on the week of July 13th, 1863, as violence erupted from nearly every corner of the city due to the Civil War draft riots. For several days, rioters attacked the homes of African-Americans and murdered men right in the streets, the very streets those people had called home. Because black New Yorkers were overwhelmed in number by the immigrants of various nations, because black New Yorkers were not homogenous, they were either former slaves or freemen with backgrounds from vastly different cultures, they were never able to really achieve political power in New York's corrupt political system. And that's even after those restrictive property laws were abolished in the years following the Civil War. The city was an oppressive and dangerous place for most Black New Yorkers, and for a great many of them, it was simply too much. Too much to put up with, to raise a family, to make a steady living, to keep your dignity. And so a great number, those who could afford to move, left the confines of the city and left for the area of today's outer boroughs. Keep in mind that before 1898, the city of New York was only the area of Manhattan and certain portions of the Bronx. Richmond County, aka Staten Island, was still vastly rural back then, which could itself be a challenge to those who looked different than the rest of their neighbors, a less tolerant place in some cases. But there were jobs, there was housing, and at least in one quarter of Richmond, there was a thriving black community. Sandy Ground, in the area of today's Rossville neighborhood in Staten Island, contained a settlement of freemen almost as old as Seneca Village, first formed in the late 1820s. In the 1840s and 50s, this small district was joined by several families from Maryland after a series of horrific laws were passed there aimed at limiting the rights of freed black people. The new residents assisted in one of Sandy Ground's principal trades, oyster harvesting. Believe it or not, to this day, many residents of Rossville can trace their lineage back to these pioneering inhabitants of sandy ground. Today, there's a sandy ground historical museum which preserves and honors this exceptional story. But for those who wanted to flee the pressures and injustices presented by an intolerant Gilded Age New York, there was a second option, a small settlement in the city of Brooklyn, or rather, I should say East of the city of brooklyn for in 1838 when an african-american steve Doerr named james weeks purchased a plot of land here which would become the village of weeksville brooklyn had not yet expanded to encompass the entire area of today's thriving borough after the civil war draft riots this mostly black village harbored those who were escaping the violence of new york joining a population of many formerly enslaved people from the south now, Weeksville has many similarities to Seneca Village, but the main difference is that a small portion of Weeksville still exists today, and in a way that is extraordinary. To get a little closer to the story of Weeksville, I went down to the Weeksville Heritage Center to have a wonderful chat with their director, Tia Pal harris who was extremely patient as my recording equipment chose at that particular moment to give out on me. But finally, when I was back online, we had this conversation looking out over the surviving homes of Weeksville, Brooklyn. Okay, I've shot back out here to Brooklyn, uh, take the A train out to the Weeksville Heritage Center. And I am looking at it. I am looking at the amazing Hunterfly Road buildings and sitting here in the lovely office of Tia Powell Harris, the director of the Weeksville Heritage Center. This is an absolutely extraordinary site and if I'm going to say this about six times, everyone needs to come and see this uh, because I I was here a few years ago, but I certainly not with this brand new complex that's been attached to it, right? This is only a few years old, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's
1: right. We took occupancy March of 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, this is our, uh, we're sitting in our cultural arts and education building. And this building actually belongs to the city, mm. Department of Cultural Affairs, um, found this experience so important that they built a building around it mm-hmm. so that we could activate more programs for the mm-hmm. community because it's, it's kind of history in your own backyard that you don't know is in your own backyard. Oh, yeah.
3: I mean, it literally <laughs> kind of does look like, like a backyard. It
1: does. And you should see the backyard of <laughs> yeah. the backyard.
3: The backyard. That's right. That's so great. this is really one of the most curious Historical places, mm-hmm. I think, in New York City, because it's literally a, a sort of a museum complex that's situated around a set of buildings. Absolutely. So, if you could uh, describe what those buildings right. look like,
1: well, originally there were there were four of these historic houses. We call them historic houses, right? Mm-hmm. They are the historic Hunter Fly Road houses, because they sit on Hunter Fly Road, which was a passageway that was used by the Native Americans of the region, the um, colonists, Mm -hmm. um, right straight up until today, because we walk on Hunter Fly Road. So, we are looking at four houses, three of which are historic. Mm -hmm. One experienced a fire and had to be renovated, so it no longer qualifies as a historic landmark. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at three houses, uh, two of which are really, really simple Mm -hmm. brown and white structures. One is a double house, so it's one level that has two sides to it, mirror Mm -hmm. images of each other. The other is a two-story home and the third is also a two story home but
3: that one has an attic too so, i mean they they look so i mean this sounds pretty obvious, out of place mm-hmm. because in the modern city. They look like something that perhaps you would read about in a Mark Twain novel, maybe. They even have that kind <laughs> of feel to them. Um, because they're houses. They're like country houses, essentially. Um, smack dab in the middle of Brooklyn. That's
1: right. We have the Kingsborough houses across mm-hmm. the street from us. We have retail establishments and storefronts up the street. We have a church on the other side of uh, Buffalo Avenue. There's an
3: elevated train. Like over that way. Exactly. That's right. And here,
1: here we find these really, really throwback houses. And the interesting thing is, they seem out of place. Mm -hmm. But it is that out of place ness that is the reason they're here now.
3: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I want to get to the almost equally fascinating story of. How they were saved, but the the circumstances of their existence at all. So the, it was the around the 1860s, correct? That the well, that they were constructed, right? We believe. Right, that's mm-hmm. right.
1: We believe the architecture harkens to the 1860s. Um, but African Americans, free people of color, mm-hmm. started purchasing land in this area earlier than that. Mm-hmm. In 1838, as a matter of
3: fact. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: There were seven investors. Landowners who started Mm -hmm. purchasing land, um, not only because they were investors and entrepreneurs, but because they intended to build a self-sustaining sanctuary or safe haven for other free people of color. So they began to purchase this land. But the the most important thing, they knew a lot. They knew a lot. But one of the things they knew was that any male who owned property valued at $250 dollars was afforded the right to vote. So they were purchasing land, they were building homes, they were moving their families here, and they were building a political power base
3: in 1838. So it was really more than just like, A nice place to live, exactly. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. Outside of the city, that's right. And you know, a sanctuary where you could, you know, build a community. But literally, you were building a voice, exactly,
1: intentionally, Mm -hmm. not happenstance at all. I can't even imagine at that time. I mean, this is eleven years after the abolition of slavery in New Mm -hmm. York State. Just a, that's, a, that's a teeny weeny drop of time. Um, most of the country is still embroiled yeah. in the institution of slavery. But this group of people had the vision, the foresight, and the activist heart mm-hmm. to take this on. And, right. be ser- and this, this community lasted about 100 years. Lasted until about the 1930s.
3: At the height of its com- at the, of the community, mm-hmm. how many structures? Like how big? How many numbers? Well, we know do you that know? there
1: were um, about 500 residents mm-hmm. here. It's about 16 blocks large. Now, you know, as as cities grow and progress, the lines of the streets, et cetera, the grid mm-hmm. lines are redrawn. So the markers of the community changed periodically. But 500. It's pretty extraordinary, really, when you think about seven people purchasing land, and that grows into this almost phenomenon. I feel it's a phenomenon. Yeah. We had, um, there were historic residents of Weeksville that were really the movers and the shakers. Weeksville was a model for an intentional community of free people of color. So you had doctors, you had pastors and reverends, you had churches. This was the borough of, of, of oh, churches. Yeah. <laughs> so you had <laughs> pastors, that's that's yes. right. Um, right along with homemakers and shoemakers and gardeners and janitors. So, so at various points in time, this was a community that was not only African American, mm-hmm. so there it was diverse in that sense, but also in the the, the character and the professions of the of the residents.
3: So you said um, until the nineteen thirties. I'm tr- so I'm I'm wondering if like perhaps one of the reasons that this neighborhood lost residents is because they went to more fashionable neighborhoods, like I mean Bed Stuy, perhaps. I mean, was was that one of the reasons? Yeah. Or? What we
1: tend to believe though is so nineteen thirties, mm-hmm. the Great Depression.
3: Yeah, times are hard.
1: You probably migrated here from someplace else, right? Down south or, or whatever. Um, at that point, it might have been a good idea to re- return home. Uh, some, mm. some folks went back south. And then others, it was urban areas were experiencing growth. And so you were moving on to other um, urban areas, too.
3: Well, that brings up a, a really good point and really the, the sort of second part of what makes the story of this place so incredible is their discovery, that's right? That's right. I mean, they were sitting here, obviously. I, I mean, that's not, they didn't like, weren't covered in a tarp.
1: That's right. But remember, <laughs> they were off the grid. Sometimes when I walk around the community and I ask people, have you been to Weeksville lately? Have you been to the historic Hunter fly Road Houses? They say, what? Uh-huh. And I say, Whoa. The historic Hunterfly Road houses, and they say, Oh, we used to call those the old houses in the alley.
3: Oh, really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so they did kind of fall off of the grid, right? Mm-hmm. So there was um a neighborhood history class studying at Pratt University, three students in the class, James Hurley was the um instructor, and he'd read an article about this historic community of Weeksville. So he says to the the class members, he says, Well, Our project could be that we go out and try to find any remnants we can find of these houses. Now, what he knew was that the Kingsborough um, houses were being developed, etc., and that if they didn't find any remnants, okay, but if they did, there was work to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they came out by foot with their maps in hand, and they found the shacks. And they thought, well, wow, this seems to be in the right place, but... I don't know we let's don't get know. our friend joseph haynes mm-hmm. to take us up in his airplane and see if we can validate verify this by
3: air an airplane an is involved airplane. here
1: that's right so they literally that's took right. to the
3: air to positively identify that's these buildings exactly right wow.
1: yeah what that caused was this ah this bubbling up of pride in the community and that an amazing woman joan maynard who was the founding executive director here was a great community organizer and once the community found out these were indeed remnants of their history their ancestors their legacy lived lived here mm-hmm. they started a campaign they enlisted petitions and politicians and everything that they could but i think one of my favorite aspects of this whole thing was how the youth of the community participated i mean it was the youth who did the first penny drive to pay for an archaeological dig right (laughs) to to retrieve artifacts in the ground the artifacts Mm -hmm. of their history right it was the boy scout troop that testified before the landmarks commission (laughs) with their little broken bottles (laughs) and their and their marbles and their coins that had been you know so they uh, were they were out here like, oh, or, absolutely. Or, uh, we, have a, we have what we call the Hurley Slide Collection, mm-hmm. and that's James Hurley, yeah. who led the class yes. mm-hmm. um, over here, documented the entire process of this community coming to bear on their history. It's amazing. It's absolutely
3: amazing. I mean, it just shows you that anyone, anyone can discover the history in, like, in your backyard, in your front yard. Tours are provided for the house What's the mm-hmm. schedule for that?
1: So walk-in tours are Tuesday through Friday at 3 p.m.
3: Okay, cool.
1: Um, and those are those are large group or small group. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I, I like the fact that with this new addition, you're helping to kind of... Create a new community in the same way that like the the original founders of this of Weeksville it. did the very same thing. That's
1: right. I say, in a different
3: era, but like uh, in the very same place.
1: place. I think I was really really lucky to land here, and have this the history as a blueprint mm-hmm. because really really. Um, The best part of my job is figuring out how to lay that blueprint onto 2017, 2018, 2019. How do you use it
3: as a... It's a a springboard. Mm -hmm. It's
1: a springboard for everything we do harkens back to the mission
3: of of preserving and
1: interpreting the history, but through an innovative lens, as creatively as we can. Mm -hmm. So we got to make history come back alive. um, And we do that... um, Every day of the
3: week. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tia, thank you so much. I really, this has been extraordinary. I want everyone to come out here and see these houses and take a tour for themselves because the, they're so breathtaking.
1: Much. It's a wonderful place mm-hmm. to be, yeah. and it's right here in your own backyard.
3: <laughs> I want to thank Tia for spending some time with me to celebrate Weeksville and go to the website, check out their events. They're doing things there all the time, and you just really need to see this new complex. It's 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 stunning. And my big, big thanks, of course, to my other guest, Kamau Ware, who told me he was a big fan of this show. And I have to say, honestly, after speaking to him in length, that he actually should do a podcast. So this is my official encouragement for him to go out and make a podcast. He just has a gift of being able to talk about people who were born 300 years ago and, and further and make them relatable and true and like your neighbors. His graphic novel, The Other Side of Wall Street, comes out next year, but you can pop in and visit him and his team down at the South Street Seaport today. On our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, I'll give you all the links for both Black Gotham Experience and the Weeksville Heritage Center. And I should say I'll also add some information about Sandy Ground Historical Museum in Staten Island, which I didn't get to go to on this show. You know, my chat with Kamau was so interesting that the entire interview will be available for our patrons. So you can go to Patreon.com, be a supporter of the Barry Boys podcast, and you'll get that entire interview and a whole lot more. In addition, you can also check out the Barry Boys spinoff show called The First Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. You can go download them stream them however you like to listen to podcasts. There's a lot of shows out there waiting for you, including one just released on the history of the very first musical in New York City in time for the Tony Awards, and a wacky story about the woman who invented one of the world's first operational dishwashers. You can go to our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. Also, check us out on Twitter at Barry Boys and on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you very much for listening. Tom will be back for the next show. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
2: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.